0: Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two guests with deep history in Iowa politics. First is Pat Reinert, founder and managing editor of Iowa Starting Line, a news outlet that covers the Iowa caucus and other political news. Hi, Pat.
1: Hi. How's it going? Thanks yeah. for having me.
0: Thanks for being on. Also joined by my friend Irene Lynn, former campaign manager for J.D. Schulten. A candidate who ran in Iowa's 4th Congressional District in 2018. Irene is a current resident of my hometown, Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> best location in the nation. Hi Irene, how are things on the North Coast?
2: Good, good. It's great to be uh, in Ohio though I have Iowa FOMO every day. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: great. So today we're going to be talking about the state of Iowa, the first contest in the Democratic presidential nomination process. And I'm really excited to get into this conversation. A quick personal anecdote to get started. I got my political start with Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition back in the 1980s. And Jesse ran a very strong campaign in 1988. He was actually the highest second-place finisher in history to that point in time and actually led the race for a while in March of that year. But he ultimately lost to Michael Dukakis. Twenty years later, I held an election night party at my house in San Francisco on the night of the Iowa caucuses in 2008. I invited one of my friends, David Onick, who's Michael Dukakis's son-in-law. Dukakis happened to be in town that day, so he came to my house for our election night party. And so my 20-year arc experience went from being an African-American man and getting involved in politics via the Jackson campaign And I went from watching the Jackson campaign fall short to Dukakis in 88 to having Dukakis sitting on my couch in my house in 2008 as we both watched Barack Obama come out and declare victory with the famous phrase, they said this day would never come. And so now I'm really looking forward to discussing Iowa uh, uh, for 2020. Everybody knows that it's the first presidential nominating contest February 3rd next year. But a lot of people still don't appreciate just how important it is to shaping all of the contests that follow on the calendar. From Jimmy Carter in 76 to Gary Hart in 84, John Kerry in 2004, and then Obama in 2008, Iowa caucuses have played a significant, if not transformative, role in the fight for the Democratic nomination. And yet much of the media and activist attention still focuses on national polling numbers. Uh, to assess the state of the race and less on the actual situation in, in, in Iowa. The other reason I'm really excited about this conversation is that Iowa can give us insight into white voters that I hope is uh, deeper than the kinds of more facile takes that you often get from many pundits and strategists. is a 92% white state in terms of eligible voters, but twice voted for a black man with the middle name of Hussein. And then 2016, it voted in huge numbers for a candidate who enthusiastically demonized Mexicans and Muslims and stoked the flames of white racial resentment. And it's home to one of the most unapologetically racist members of Congress, Steve King. So we have a lot to learn by diving into Iowa. So just to get us going, Pat, can you tell us a little bit about your background in Iowa politics and how you came to start uh, the Iowa starting line?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was the Iowa caucus that drew me here in the first place. I ended up choosing to go to Drake University in Des Moines to get involved and uh, started here in 2003. And within one month, I got to drive John Kerry around the state as a as an intern. Wow. Uh, then I worked on a number of different state leg- uh, or I worked for Hillary Clinton in the 0708 caucus and a bunch of state legislative uh, state Senate campaigns, uh, for a couple cycles after. And then in January, 2015, I decided to start up my own website, uh, called myself a reporter, was a reporter, <laughs> um, and, uh, created this Iowa uh, that I have. Uh, and, uh, we've grown a lot, uh, currently here for this Iowa caucus. I literally have more full-time political reporters on staff than the register does. Wow. Uh, and so we cover, you know, we cover, iowa caucus iowa politics and because i'm a former campaign staffer i do a lot of like behind the scenes type Mm -hmm. books and stuff great
0: um and you have a podcast too right
1: yes yeah yeah just the iowa podcast yeah right
0: um so irene uh how did a asian american woman from southern california end up running a congressional campaign in northern iowa (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's a good question, right? Um, So my affair with the Iowa caucus goes back to my first campaign I ever worked on was Howard Dean. So I was part of that wild ride. That was in 2003. And uh, I was never in Iowa, but I was in Vermont the night that he lost the Iowa caucuses Mm -hmm. and uh, was completely devastated. It's still, the most shattering uh, political defeat. You know, when you're young and so yeah. idealistic, yeah. and so I really hated Iowa uh, <laughs> after that. <laughs> and then in uh, 2008, I came. Uh, I came back. I was volunteering, doing communications for John, uh, not John Kerry, sorry, um, for Barack Obama. Uh, in that legendary race. And uh, so on the night of the Iowa caucuses, I was actually in Missouri, St. Louis, because that was a February 5th state. So they needed some um, staffers to cover those states. So I was there through Iowa and then New Hampshire the week later. So it was a quite a redeeming moment. And then in 2012, I was hired as the Iowa State Policy Director for the Obama reelect. So I was living in Des Moines for for quite a bit, and they hired me, because um, I don't have your normal background, because I have a specialty in agriculture policy and working in um, rural politics, especially with family farmers. Mm-hmm. I've been at the National Family Farm Coalition and just always had a real interest in, um, in the farm sector and farm justice politics that I think often gets overlooked as part mm-hmm. of the progressive movement. So that's how I, I came back and uh, was on that. And then in uh, 2018, when uh, J.D. Shulton called me, I didn't think he had a shot in hell. Well, we talked about ag policy and just about the farm crisis and how passionate he was. And, you know, he's a fifth generation Iowan, comes from a farm family. And I was like, look, someone's going to put up a fight against Steve King. And uh, so I'll be glad to help you out. And we didn't know what the race was going to be like. And it definitely became a national phenomenon by the end. So I was proud to have played a role, even though we came just a little bit short. Right.
0: All right. Well, let's let's turn to the presidential race then. And so... um, First, let's in terms of looking at what happened in twenty sixteen, but to look at twenty sixteen. Have to understand two thousand eight and twenty twelve, right? So, for the just my background for the for the listeners, Iowa's been a very purple state, right? The historically fiercely contested swing state. Gore, Al Gore, beat Bush by less than one percent in two thousand, and then Bush beat Kerry by less than one percent in two thousand four. But then Obama won a near landslide with a margin of nearly 10 percent and then won again in 2012, even after the glow of 2008 it had worn off, the 6 percent margin. Pat, I start with you, why, why do you think Obama did so well in Iowa?
1: I mean, I think the biggest thing that you'll hear when you ask people about that here is that he presented himself as a change agent. And the the general mood of a lot of folks in Iowa, and the Midwest in particular, is just that, you know, the system is not working for us, we're we're getting paid low wages, there's a lot of health care coverage issues, and we're just sick of stuff. So, you know, typically candidates who have run on a change type message have, have done well, and Obama did particularly well. You know after just a lot of frustration with George W uh, George W Bush's uh, presidency uh, th- that was the big part of it you know he also uh, excited and motivated a much bigger broader diverse part of the Democratic Party kind of got the Democratic Party up to what its real potential was uh, in terms of you know turning out a lot of new folks and you know even though uh, uh, Iowa is a, a very white, state if you can you know uh, increase you know certain pockets of support throughout the state through more diverse communities like it can make a difference
0: and so irene what was your take both on obama's success period originally but you were also there in 2012 right so he was incumbent at that point and yet still was able to win so what was your sense of what about him was resonating with the iowa voters
2: yeah, I think a, a key factor that's been kind of overlooked, you know, I'm someone who follows the commodity markets more than I do whatever DC's talking about. So in 2012, there was actually record high commodity prices. Uh, so farmers were making money uh, one of the very few times in the last 200 years they have. So people were pretty fat and happy and complacent. Um, we also had an unprecedented field campaign. You know, people told me that this, there, you'll never be another campaign like this where you have like 60 offices. And we were everywhere. Like, you know, a lot of small towns had an Obama field office. And so we left no um, corner unturned. And also because I was doing the policy, you know, we stressed a message of wind energy, and that Obama saved the wind um, industry in Iowa, which which is a, a key factor. And uh, Mitt Romney was going to take it away. And that I think, you know, so we actually made sure we had a message. Also a lot folks don't know, Obama actually had these rural roundtables where we would invite all these like small community weeklies that people really read in these small towns. And we would do these rural roundtables. And they were so excited, you know, to talk to the president. And we got some of these the most glowing coverage, you know, in these small little newspapers. Uh, I can tell you Hillary Clinton did not (laughs) do uh, much of that uh, in 2016. And then by 2016, commodity prices had tanked again. And I think that's actually an unkind of heralded factor as to why the change message of Trump was so alluring for a lot of um, a lot of folks, especially in rural areas, and also Obama disappointed a lot of farmers who I personally know because he had promised change and he was going to take on big agribusiness, and he kind of sold them out a little bit. You know, Smithfield is now owned by China, which is a huge pork company, um, and and that's disappointed a lot of people. As I was, uh, pork farmers continually struggle, so that there was that sense that, and I hearing from farmers who were like, look, Irene, you know, Obama said he was going to bring change, he didn't, so I'm going to roll the dice with trump even though i would try to tell him that probably wasn't going to happen but (laughs) you know that unfortunately that that message played
0: so what was your your take pat in terms of what was different in 2016 than in uh 08 and 12 and why trump did so well
1: Well, again, the the Trump was then this time running as the change kind of blew everything up, Uh, again, quite the drastic change. And you know, Hillary Clinton ended up get uh, you know being in a position where she was running as almost a quasi incumbent and just trying to, you know, explain that actually things were going relatively okay in the country. Uh, That was the biggest part of it. There there were there were a lot of other things. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, Trump, um, unfortunately. You know, with his anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, whipped up a certain part of, of of the population that does not typically vote, um, mm. and and they came out in part for that, in part because of you know this was this brash outsider guy, you know, railing against the system is a bit of both. Uh, one of the more interesting anecdotes I heard was. Uh, from a friend, oh, it wasn't Worth County. No, it's Howard County, I believe, up in uh, northern Iowa, which is actually the one that swung the most, a full 20, uh, or excuse me, a full 40 points from 12 to 16. It was plus 20 Obama in 12 and plus <laughs> 20 uh, Trump in 16. And a friend of mine said that they were out working the polls and they had people come out who were essentially shut-ins like they literally barely ever left their house. Mm-hmm. They didn't really know anything about <laughs> voting. Um, so, so he also activated just kind of this this other like outsider type voter that that hadn't been engaged before.
0: Well, that's such a really important point. It's something that we've that some of our research that we've done really found, particularly in, in places like Florida as well. And that's often left mm-hmm. out of this national debate around getting back the Trump voters, et cetera. That there were and that the Obama Trump voters, but kind of what you're you're pointing at, Pat, is right? That there were a lot of Non-voters, Trump voters, mm-hmm. who actually came out. So, in terms of the, I'm, it, I, but it seems to be a pretty central part of the debate right now is around because there is this notion, right? There's all these, you know, Obama Trump voters. And we have to figure out how to get them back. And so, my question, I guess, kind of to both of you is, do you? How much do you think that that was a significant? You've talked about the change factor, and that's I think a compelling point. The question I keep wrestling with is, are there people who voted for Obama, but then were persuaded by Trump's anti-immigrant message? And if so, is it even possible to get them back? And so I'm curious around on on each of your your thoughts on that one. I'll start with you, Irene. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely think we can we can get in the bag. We just have to kind of address the issues that they care about. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of what people don't talk about is the Bernie Trump voter because we actually had quite a few of those in our district, uh, mostly all men, mm-hmm. I will say. But they would tell me, all the time, oh, yeah, I would have voted for Bernie if he had been, you know, the nominee. But, you know, we elected that woman and I couldn't vote for her. So and I find that uh, people have actually not really uh, – Brought that up because I think they were both seen again. I like guess Pat says outsiders who are going to shake up the system, go after corruption, and, and so I definitely think you know someone that has that kind of Bernie appeal and is speaking to a lot, of especially working class interests. Um, I think can definitely uh, can definitely do well, and yeah, and in Iowa, you know, I think we don't have the luxury. We have to win back some of those voters if we're going to you know win the senate race and all the on all four congressional seats you know other states that may not so be the case but because we swung so heavily and we have so many of these swing voters i think we we need to come up with something
1: yeah and and i think one of the the central kind of questions here is essentially like how could obama you know win iowa by a decent margin right. and then so many of those folks you know vo- vote for the first black president and then end mm-hmm. up voting for Trump right. with all that type of rhetoric. And it's, it's a really good question. And it's, 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 it's much more complicated than what I think a lot of kind of the national debate over it has been. Is it, oh, is it because all these voters are, you know, decided they were racist this time? And it's some of them. Yeah, some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but others, it, it, it was a number of different issues. I mean, there were, you know, I, I worked for Hillary Clinton, I thought she would have been a great president, but like, she was a flawed candidate in some ways. And there were, you know, legitimate reasons to be kind of not as excited about her, um, you know, that that didn't involve immigration or race. When I did some deep dive and in, uh, dives into Dubuque County, which went Republican for the first time since uh, Eisenhower in 1956, what I found was essentially there was three big problems. One was out in the rural areas. Uh, it was still pretty Republican and turnout was higher in the base Democratic Precincts where there were much younger and minority voters, turnout was really down. It mm-hmm. it didn't improve much for Trump. And then there were a lot of white working class uh, areas, the flats as they call them um, on the north end of Dubuque, I believe. Um, a lot of factory workers. That turnout was about the same, but it shifted from a deep blue precinct to just a light blue because mm-hmm. enough of them flipped over. To Trump, mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of different issues. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things is that, uh, you know, again, how did Obama win and, the, and then Trump did? You know, McCain and Romney did not make a lot of these racial appeals. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that stuff was out there. And I think one of the very frustrating things is that as long as somebody with as high visibility as, you know, a presidential candidate or the president is making those um, appeals, it, it has an impact to some degree.
0: Well, that that's the okay, case. So one of the questions I want I wanted to to try to explore more is what is the? It's almost like what's the the tipping point or dividing line on those kinds of issues, right? So that there's a lot of the coded or semi-coded uh, racial appeals, but then if like you go too far in terms of cause even Trump was he doesn't want to be you know a, you know be called a racist. So I guess I'm really curious in terms of what. Your sense is if, if there were a more explicit and sustained focus around white supremacy, like we had like a few weeks around white supremacy and racism, and this was a problem, you know, in terms of Trump, you know, send them back, et cetera. But that seems to have died down. And so I'm very curious, like, what would be the response if there were more sustained and explicit focus um, on, on uh, I guess, Trump's racism and, and his appeals to white supremacy?
2: Well, you know, I think what Andrew Yang is doing is actually quite interesting because he has attracted quite a few Trump supporters in that he says, look, I get why you guys are mad, but it's not really immigration that's your problem. It's automation. And a lot of them are kind of listening to him. And I think it's, you know, can you speak to what it is that's contributing to the fear? Because in Iowa, you know, I think economically, a lot of these rural areas where Trump did well have stagnated. And they want to hear about, you know, what's your plans to make my life better? And and if you can have something that can counter, like, look, it's not immigrants' fault, but it's these other things and this is how we're going to fix it, I think folks will, you know, be open to your message. I just think Hillary didn't really have a way to persuade folks that she was on their side. Um, and I think that's – so I, I find interesting the approach that Andrew Yang has kind of mm-hmm. done um, in terms – and the way that he's – you know, he he doesn't dwell on Trump's racism even though he disagrees with it. Um, But he just kind of lays out, like, here's what I think we should be doing about, you know, your concerns and why you're wrong. And I think a lot of people are actually giving him a fair hearing on it who are, Mm -hmm. you know, quote, Trump supporters.
0: So, Pat, uh, the Democrats did pretty well in 2018, picking up congressional Mm -hmm. congressional seats at the same time, right, as Trump continued to, you know, push around the wall. And then the migrants tried to whip up that same kind of fear. So how did that play and what do you think were the salient um, issues in 2018?
1: So interestingly, I, I think it actually backfired to a certain extent here in Iowa, how much they focused on, it wasn't so much the wall, it was dangerous Hispanic immigrants that are coming into the country to get you like Rod Blum, who uh, who represent Northeast Iowa, the congressional district up there, ran one of the most ridiculous, racist, blatantly racist TV ads I saw where it showed Abby Finkenauer, who who ended up beating him and is now the second youngest woman uh, in Congress. Uh, but showed an image of her, and then the image of the, that like MS-13 gang that I'm sure like everyone has <laughs> right, seen, right. and and stuff like all tattooed. They're, the 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 people themselves are not even uh, in America; <laughs> they're in. Some, but anyway, um, and I I think they they went overboard on that. The Democrats largely focused on healthcare issues that helped win. One of the interesting things I, I think when you talk about, you know, uh, uh, do you confront and run a message on, you know, anti white supremacy? I think it has to be careful in directing it very specifically to the, like, either Trump or like a king. Because one of the things that I hear, and it's, I mean, I, I wish they weren't like this. I wish it was different, but like, there's knee jerk responses to people when they think that they themselves are getting called racist. Right. Something interesting, I think, uh, if, you know, Iowa Republicans run a bunch of those kind of immigrant race baiting ads is to just like address it up front and be like, you know what? It's not the Democrats who think you're racist. It's the Republicans because mm. they're running these ads that make that they think because you see you see an image of a brown person that it's going to get you angry. Meanwhile, I'm talking about health care. So mm. if you want to show you're not a racist, let's all rise above this and focus on the things that matter.
0: In yeah, no, the
2: governor's race, Kim Reynolds didn't go there at all, and she won, yes, you know, correct. I think, part mm-hmm. by running a pretty positive and staying away from all that stuff. Right,
0: yeah, and that I think that's, that's really interesting. I think you're raising, Pat, and that's one of the things I want to actually push much of the rest of the Democratic infrastructure to look at. I mean, there should, I would think there should be focus groups testing out that exact type of an yeah. approach
1: um, around that. I, I have no movement. idea if it would work. It's just an idea. <laughs> right. No, that sounds great. to <laughs> you know me.
0: Okay, let's lastly let's, let's, let's turn to the 2020 election. Um, where all the attention and focus and energy is right now. So just in terms of the basic uh, horse race. um, uh, uh, So, Pat, what's your take on the state of the race? Does this uh, Des Moines Register poll just came out where I had Warren at 22 percent, Biden 20, Bernie back at 11, and the rest of the field clustered in single digits. Does that strike you as accurate? And what's your kind of sense of the current state of the race?
1: Yeah, for the most part, that did. And it's something we've been seeing slowly over the course of you know, the summer now into the fall that Elizabeth Warren has just been slowly and steadily, you know, uh, working her way up in the state through, you know, good, solid performances in the debates uh, by, you know, having this massive, really well organized ground game out here in Iowa. She spent a ton of time early on. Uh, in Iowa and locked up like a a lot of good activist support and impressed a lot of people. Uh, So, you know, Joe Biden has still been pretty resilient, but uh, Warren has just very methodically worked her way on up there there were some headlines i was like oh warren surges or like you know buy freefall," and free fall and, that, and that's just not the case like un, unlike i think kind of like what kamala harris had which was very much a, a moment a debate mm-hmm. moment warren has just kind of steadily moved her way up which i think is a little bit more sustainable um you know it, it, it's interesting to see where bernie sanders is at i always think that you know, uh, you could. In my mind, I usually add on three or five percentage points to wherever Bernie's at because I just think it's <laughs> it's hard to pull his actual base of support of a mm. lot of new people coming out. And then Buttigieg was pretty close behind him. I was surprised he wasn't higher up. Uh, Buttigieg right now, like my God, the the crowds, the mm. the enthusiastic crowds that he is getting out around this state are really something else. Interesting.
0: Well, that's what question I was I get
2: Howard Dean deja vu though. Well, we, right, but that that's <laughs> part of my that's it could be, it could be. Right. Yeah.
0: That's my next question right is that you've had these different um, candidates over the over the years who will have strength at one point in time and it really seems that peaking is critical and that in most of the in many of these past races, right, people have surged. Right? I mean John Kerry was at 4% one month out and then one up going on to win. Hillary in November was leading by 25 points over Bernie and won by 0.2%. So I guess for both of you who have been part of these different you know uh, races over the years, do you think that that dynamic of somebody surging late will likely replicate itself? And who do you think could be the the candidate or candidates who surge? You want to start?
2: Yeah, someone always seems to, whether it was like John Edwards, right? Um, back in 04. And uh, so I definitely think, you know, I think Pat's written about this, that Cory Booker is just somehow too good not to have his moment at some right. point. You know, he's got a great organization. You know, I've, I've talked to the act. No one has ever said anything bad to me about Booker. All the activists love him. He brings people to tears, you know, constantly. I'm, so it's a little surprising that he hasn't quite had his moment yet um, in Iowa. And I, I think and I think he will. And, and I think Klobuchar also has a potential, just if especially if, as Biden fades and people want the safe moderate you know Midwestern gal you know I can see a lot of people also going to her
0: right and just just on the, Sorry, on uh, the, so, yeah. the full disclosure points so yeah so I I think well, I don't know if everybody does know but right so I've actually been very you know supportive of uh, Booker and that um, Irene has been working with us on that as well um and so I think f- also from the analytical standpoint right about this as a candidate it's somewhat replicate uh, replicates, but you know has a lot of the elements that uh, that Obama had had. And so, uh, like I, Irene was saying, I've been somewhat surprised as well that he hasn't surged. But I'm I'm uh, to this point. But again, it's it's early, so I'm curious, you know, Patris. But you're talk about Buttigieg's strength, and that. What is your take around who in this field would uh, you think would have the potential to be one of the late surgers?
1: I mean, I think Buttigieg definitely still does, because what you see out on the campaign trail seems to be above what he's showing in the polls. Maybe that ends up You know, coming together or not. Maybe they all just really like him, but, you know, they think he's too young or something. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Booker's got a good shot. Uh, Beto O'Rourke has some new energy and he's got a large campaign team out here. Kamala Harris is going to be really interesting to watch during October because she's going to be spending half of October out here in Iowa and Mm -hmm. she typically gets very enthusiastic uh, crowds. So it'll be really fascinating to see. What happens after she, you know, covers so much ground out here? Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the big uh, things to watch on, you know, in in the final stretch is uh, second choices and how much do candidates criticize each other on the TV airways? Because back in uh, the '04 race, essentially Dick Gephardt and Howard <laughs> Dean uh, nuked each other on TV, yes. um, and that's how Kerry and Edwards came up at the end. and you know in in the Iowa caucus in most precincts you have to have 15% of the people in the room to be quote unquote viable right. and get a get a delegate and if you're not then you got to go to a different candidate so i think the it's it's a tricky thing to play but the candidate who most people like by the time we get to caucus night will get more of those second choices in this big field and that will be a big advantage
0: right so we're we're re- recording this like in real time with all this impeachment stuff unfolding here now. So I'm curious, this is our last you know, question, like what is your assessment on um, a couple of different levels is like, how does this going to potentially play itself out both within the democratic field, also with the potential of Biden being, you know, caught up in controversy at least. Um, and then what do we think that it, that the implications of this will be for the support for Trump um, looking in the in the general election.
2: I mean, in our um, race in Iowa 4th District, very few people cared <laughs> about what was going on in D.C. with mm. the Mueller report. And I mean, I don't think I ever really heard a question about the Mueller report or impeachment or any of that. So I can guarantee you that farmers are more upset about you know the EPA scandal about Trump and ethanol than they are about <laughs> whatever he may have done in Ukraine. Um, that's not to say that a lot of, liberal activists aren't upset about it and that it won't play a role. But uh, I just think sometimes the conversations in D.C. are very different than what you hear on the ground.
0: Interesting. Great. All right. Well, we'd like to close our podcast with a uh, personally, hopefully, fun question to help our listeners get Don't to worry. know us better. So here's the question that uh, to each of you, and I guess I'll throw into is if you could have front row seats to any concert, who would you like to see? So I know, I know, Irene. You have strong opinions on art and culture, and so um, maybe we'll start they, with. They you. have to
2: be alive or dead.
0: <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Either way, whatever.
2: Yeah, because that would be Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why is that? If I could have my choice. Just he was such a visionary, such a prophet. You know, there's never been quite anyone like him, which is why you still have hologram <laughs> Tupac showing up at <laughs> shows. So you know, I was I was a little young to appreciate him. I think when he passed, so now. You know, now his, uh, I think people are still remembering him. And so I would have loved to have, to have seen him live. Right,
1: Pat? And this is the kind of question that I always fear getting because my, <laughs> my entire life is just politics and, and news and only that, <laughs> unfortunately, I never have time for anything else. Um, I don't know. I, I would go with Bruce Springsteen because mm-hmm. it, it's, well, uh, be it's. Nice. how could you do anything there? But then the boss. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it overlays, right? So the final right. rally for Kerry in 20, yeah. 2004 was Bruce Springsteen, right?
2: Mm-hmm. In 2012 for Obama.
0: Oh really? I didn't actually, I didn't actually know that part. What
2: yeah, I the was... very mm-hmm. or, yeah the very very last political rally of Barack Obama's career was in Des Moines with Bruce Springsteen. And uh, I was not there because they sent me to Dubuque to do GOTV and to this day I'm still very bitter well, and <laughs> I was not there.
0: Bitter you're not there, but not bitter that we reelected Obama. Um, yes, we
2: won, but uh, oh man, I was so upset. Right.
0: <laughs> so what's, what's my answer to my question, I guess? I went to this concert, this is in the Alive and Dead category. My uncle, who played a really, you know, big role in, in my life, was really into Lena Horn as a singer, and then I think as she, you know, one of the first African-Americans to kind of cross over to a certain extent, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to go see her perform live when I was young um, in Cleveland. And um, so I think the association with my uncle, how meaningful that was to him, that kind of overlays with me, so. All right, so thank you guys for participating. Let me just wrap up here. Um, that's all the time we have today. To thank, so thank you uh, for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you so much to our guests, Irene Lynn and Pat Reinard. Please help spread the word about this new political podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at democracy color and at Steve P tweets and find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.